good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces, and welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today, in this podcast, we're going to discuss how to obey the government without compromising our beliefs or our actions. Today, we'll lead off with the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 15. And as usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today. We will put those in the overview. But with the question of what to do when Caesar seizes us, let's just dig right in. Exactly. What are we to do when Caesar wants to seize us? Throughout history, that has always been the issue eventually with governments who ride roughshod over their populations and turn them into slaves. Randy's going to read a classical passage here dealing with the so-called separation of church and state. And this is from Matthew 22, and it's one of the last questions Jesus is asked uh, that uh, week that he's up on the earth before he's crucified. And he gives an astounding answer. Here it is, Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. Right. When to give to God and when to give to Caesar. In one sense, since they're asking about taxes, basically Jesus strictly is saying, you pay taxes. Mm. Everything else belongs to God. In fact, we are always giving to God if we are Christian. Giving him praise, giving him thanks, giving him our time, our tithes, our energy, uh, petitioning him for help, giving him worship, etc., etc. In this sense, of course, Caesar is always second. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Caesar wants to be first because eventually he grows tired of being second. Mm. And we'll come to the matter of taxes and all that in just a, a while as we move toward the end of the podcast. Which is fitting because the tax day. This is yet yeah, tax day, uh, April 18th, I believe, yeah. of this yeah. year 23. Yeah. Let us uh, start with some quotes, and uh, you will see where these are going as we try to set up the context for this podcast. Here's a quote from Fox News, March 21st of this year. Quote, Joseph Kennedy was terminated from his high school football coaching position after he continued to conduct post-game prayers with students. Kennedy is now set to receive a $1.7 million settlement after the Bremerton School Board in Washington State accepted a settlement. He will also get his job back starting this upcoming season. The school board's decision follows the Supreme Court's ruling in June that Kennedy's prayer groups were protected by the First Amendment. End of quote. Well, amen. But, and with government, there's always a however. Let us never put our faith in the courts. Here's why. Second quote. This is from Faith Wire, March 24th of this year. Quote, Brothers Eric and Mark Stahl, who both play on the NHL's Florida Panthers, 
refused to wear pro-LGBT sweaters during the team's warm-up skate Thursday evening, citing their Christian beliefs. They say, after many thoughts, prayers, and discussions, we've chosen not to wear a Pride Night shirt jersey tonight. They put out a statement according to ESPN. They continue the quote, we carry no judgment on how people choose to live their lives and believe that all people should be welcome in all aspects of the game of hockey. Having said that, we feel that by us wearing a pride jersey, it goes against our Christians' beliefs. So here's the point we are making. A few victories at the Supreme Court do not change a culture. Mm. How long before the Supreme Court completely abandons the First Amendment when it comes to the LGBT movement? The pressure is clearly on from the LGBT community to continue the fight. Remember, I can't emphasize this enough, politics is downstream from culture. Downstream. When I was a Boy Scout in northern Kentucky in the hills of eastern Campbell County, we would take uh, weekends to go out and put up our tents and stay in the woods and you know cook our own food and do that kind of thing. Scoutmaster always said, because we would be near a body of water, a creek, and plenty of creeks in northern Kentucky, a young man. If you got to do your business, go downstream <laughs> and do it. Do not do it upstream from us. Listen, it, all, it all rolls downhill. It all, yeah, it yeah, all yeah. comes downhill. Yeah. Listen to Amos 5, verses 12 through 15. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. For it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Right. Uh, the society was corrupt. Establish judgment and justice in the gate, meaning, of course, as we would say, in the courts. They were having a problem with uh, the corruption of their society. So, in verse 24, here's a statement that Amos uses to wind this up. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There you go. And that's quoted, of course, by Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech at Washington, D.C. back in the 60s. And, of course, he was making the same point. Uh, in order to have a righteous society, it's got to flow down, toward the culture. It's interesting, you know, we always think as Christians we need to speak out. And here in Amos 5.13, it says, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it's an evil time. Yes, that's right. When you want to do what's right and see what's right, it's so bad you can't do that for fear of your life, you've got trouble. And so Amos is saying that uh, justice and righteousness at the society's level flows down, comes down to us. And so... Uh, it's either that or corruption comes down to us. Therefore, the first, uh, let's talk about how this applies now to a downstream examples. Listen to this. Uh, the first openly gay character, and this is not a podcast on gayness, but this forming the context for the whole problem here of the government. The first openly gay character on TV was Billy Crystal's portrayal of Jody Dallas. I remember watching some of those. Back on the sitcom Soap oh, yeah. in 1977. In 1996, because of some of these movements in the gay community, DOMA, Defense of Marriage Act, remember when Clinton was president, uh, was formed. And that was the last attempt to make heterosexual marriage the norm, but Will and Grace 
with that major gay character from 1997 to 2006, won out. Mm. From cultural activism to cultural acceptance to the court's acquiescence, one generation, 38 years, with the advent of soap in 1977 to June 26, 2015, when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriages. 38 years. 38 years, a generation. Biblical generations we considered 40, so less than that. And the LGT movement is accelerating faster through culture than the gay movement ever did. Just this past few days, a fellow named Dylan Mulvaney, who was a known gay person, but decided to become a woman, uh, became celebrated by Budweiser Light, and they're uh, wanting to recognize his 365 days of being a woman. And he's now been uh, apparently hired by Nike uh, for advertising women's sports bras. So, So and, and that's yes, in a time when men are becoming women and ruining women's sports, (laughs) sports, <laughs> major corporations are aiding and abetting the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so that's what I mean. It's cultural. And so eventually that's going to, that corruption will go downstream to the Supreme Court because everything's downstream from culture. Yeah. Everything's downstream from culture. So the LGBT movement is accelerating through the culture much faster than the gay movement ever did. Uh, just this past week, President Biden recognized Transgender Day of Visibility just days after the Nashville shooting. Uh, here in the greater Nashville area, as you probably know, we had a school shooting last week uh, where six people, three nine-year-olds and three adults, were killed by a transgender woman named Audrey Hale, 28 years of age. Uh, the major medias and outlets bent over backwards not to uh, make it known that she was a transgender person. Now, here's how the LGBTQ community responded. Uh, This is from The Daily Caller by Kate Anderson in March of this year, 28th. Quote, the Trans Resistance Network, known as TRN, released a statement only hours after the shooting calling Hale, and she's the one who did the killing, the second and more complex tragedy that occurred that day, warning against attempts by the right to create fear and push transgender elimination. In other words, the LGBT people are the victims. Mm. They were not concerned about any others. And this is typical of the narrative being run by the LGBT community, and they're getting corporations as well as politicians, as always, behind them. All this is downstream from what should be uh, righteousness, but it becomes corruption. According to Fox News, March 28th, uh, from Peter Kasperowitz, uh, quote, Attorney General Merrick Garland said Tuesday that it's too early to say whether the shooting at the Covenant School in Uh, Nashville, Tennessee, will be investigated as a hate crime, end of quote. And as of this podcast, far as I know, this day, no motive uh, has been discerned, say the authorities. We say, really? Does anyone doubt if the ones killed were POC, people of color? That is exactly what it would be called, a hate crime. And above all, killing children? Mm. That can't be called a a hate crime? Uh, But then again, we live in a culture pushing abortion and infanticide. Uh, the gay movement of the 60s led to political changes we're still reeling from today, and the LGBT movement wants to keep their so-called enemies totally off balance, which is why they're continually pushing, pushing, pushing. This podcast is in response to one of our listeners of our last podcast, which was uh, Christianity is not a political movement, and here's what he wrote. Great podcast. I would love to hear more about how Romans 13, 1 through 4 applies to us today 
and our current political climate, end of quote. Uh, Our above quotes serve as an introduction to this podcast in the nature of Christian civil disobedience, which is, to wit, the refusal to follow certain laws as a peaceful form of political protest, meaning no violent protest, just refusal to obey the law that prevents us from doing our Christian duty, such as maybe not using transgender pronouns or the kind of language that these people want. Uh, President Biden's trans speech uh, that he gave this past week, I quoted Genesis 127 about people being made in the image of God, but applying it to the LGBT community, which of course is totally out of context in scripture since there is no such thing as LGBT movement in scripture. It's male and female in Genesis, and Jesus reiterates it in Matthew 19. So what should be the Christian understanding of this passage? Randy's going to read Romans 13, 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Uh, Paul is talking about the purposes uh, for which God ordained government. He's not dealing with the corruptions, which we find, strangely enough, in Revelation 13. Romans 13 shows the ideal. Uh, Revelation 13 shows what happens when government goes haywire. So is Paul saying government must always be obeyed no matter what? Are we never to resist the government? Um, Let's set the biblical context, Old Testament to New Testament, by looking at examples of those resisting government laws or edicts, and then draw some conclusions as to what is wrong resistance and what is right resistance. We're going to look at some 15 passages from the Old to the New in basically chronological order, and then return to Romans 13. Uh, First one coming up we're going to have is Exodus 1. The background is this. There arose uh, in Egypt a Pharaoh, a king, who did not know Joseph. And he and other uh, officials who ran the government were fearful. The Israelites were multiplying left and right. And they said, if we get attacked by our enemy, they will join our enemy and we'll be wiped out. So we got to reduce the population. So the decree went out to kill the male babies born of Hebrew women. So Randy's going to read Exodus 1, 15 through 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puha, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Interesting. The midwives did not commit infanticide. They decided to save the Hebrew sons, so they deceived the government, and God blessed them. Mm. Now, is it wrong to deceive the government? 
it depending on what the situation is. But in this situation and some others we're going to look at, that's what they did. And the result is God blesses. For example, we're going to go to James 2, but he's referring to a passage in Joshua 2. And that's when Joshua sent out a couple of spies to spy out Jericho to see how they could take it over. And they end up with a, a woman named Rahab, who's a prostitute. And she says to them, basically, hey, we've heard the stories. We know how your God brought you out of Egypt, the mighty hand, and destroyed uh, your enemies on the way. And we, we fear you. Of, we do, meaning Rahab and a few others, her family mostly. And therefore, uh, we know that the Lord, whom you serve, he is God. Mm. So please, you know, be kind to me and my family when you come to take over Jericho. So listen to James in uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 24 through 25. What she does is she hides the spies uh, because the government officials are coming, the king's men, and she gives them misdirection. And they go one way, and so the spies escape and promise that they will save her and the family when the time comes. James 2, 24, 25. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Yes, sent them out another way. And in doing so, she saved her family, and she ends up in Jesus' genealogy <clears throat> over Matthew. Next one is from 1 Samuel 26, and it's the second time that David has spared Saul's life. Saul, of course, was first the anointed king of uh, Israel, but then David rose in popularity. Saul began to get paranoid, began to persecute and try to kill David and his men, and has been attempting to do it for almost 10 years, uh, running around in the wilderness. And so he has, David has another opportunity to take out Saul but what does he do? Listen to 1 Samuel 26, 6 through 11. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Job's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So this is the second time he had the opportunity to kill Saul. He refuses, and here he explicitly tells why. One reason, Saul's the anointed of the Lord. God did anoint him. God put him there. David has also been anointed. But right now, Saul is the one who's in charge. And according to David, and I think David was right, God put him there, and only God can take him out. So uh, from David's viewpoint, uh, maybe the Lord will strike him. Strike him dead. God does that in the Old Testament on occasion. Or he will die, as everybody does eventually. Or he will perish in battle, which in fact is what happens. Mm. So what is David doing? He's sparing Saul's life, but he's not surrendering to him either. Mm. Saul wants him to bow the knee and be obedient to the government, and David will not do that. He's not going to do it. And David could have justified revolution. 
that's what this is about. It's what the, his good friend was telling him to do. You know, a revolution, get rid of that king, you take over, and you'll run things. Instead, David says, I'll trust God to work that out. And here's another one, and this is in 1 Kings 18. And, and the background, of course, is the uh, rule of Ahab and uh, Jezebel, his wicked wife, who influences him. And it's rough uh, times for the prophets of God. They're being hunted down and killed. And a man named Obadiah is doing his best to uh, save them, spare them, and hide them. So let's look at first, 1 Kings 18, 1 through 4. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared God, feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So uh, here is Obadiah taking care of the prophets who speak the truth uh, hiding them from the wickedness of Jezebel, who wants them all dead. Uh, so what happens? Listen to this conversation now, verses 7 through 14. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told, my Lord, that what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. Yes. So he's doing a good thing, but he knows the government will, when they find out, he's going to die. And he fears the Lord, but, you know, natural sense, he doesn't want to die. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, Elijah, I know how you operate. I don't want you left here holding uh, the bucket or the bag, so to speak. You know, help me out here. Elijah doesn't exactly help him out, and it does work out for Obadiah. But here's a fellow who's hiding prophets who are sworn to be killed by the government. And that's not right. That's unjust. That's corrupt. So Obadiah is doing what he can, not obeying mm -hmm. the dictate of uh, the king and the queen, but taking care of the prophets. And so basically, he's like the Cory Ten Boom mm. of the Old Testament. Uh, just to refresh everyone's mind on that, uh, here's a quote from Kalina Fraga's article of July 1st, uh, 2021. And this is a little short summary of Cory Ten Boom. And you'll notice the parallels between Obadiah and what Cory Ten Boom and her family did under the Nazi regime of Germany. Quote The watchmakers, that's the family we're referring to, had a secret. In their home, above the family shop in the Dutch city of Harleen, they had built a safe room. There, Corrie ten Boom, her sister, and her father would save the lives of some 800 Jews fleeing the Nazis. The ten Boom family joined the Dutch resistance after, remember resistance? You know, the trans community has a resistance. 
Well, here's resistance here. Mm -hmm. The Dutch resistance after the Germany invaded the Netherlands in 1940, guided by their religious beliefs, they quietly funneled desperate Jewish refugees to safety. But in 1944, an informer would send the Nazis straight to their door. And of course, the family was taken. Eventually, as we know, Corrie ten Boom survived the concentration camp and uh, continued to have a great ministry and testimony for Lord's mercy. So uh, whether it's back in the Old Testament or even the World War II with the Nazis, you see the same kind of uh, resistance against certain government decrees are not right, and we're going to help people even though you say we shouldn't. And we may suffer consequences because of that, as Obadiah understood and Corrie ten Boom's family clearly understood. Here's some more. Uh, we're going to take a look at Daniel, the three guys who got tossed into the fiery furnace. Everyone knows that story. Uh, the king has built a great uh, obelisk to be worshipped, a new god. And when the music sounds, the decree went out, everybody's going to bow, bow the knee. But the three friends of Daniel did not do that. And someone informed on them. Mm. And so they are confronted by the king. You've got to do this. You've got to do that because this is uh, the command of the government. You've got to bow down and worship this obelisk. So let's take a look as Randy reads Daniel 3, 13 through 18. Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Yes, they take their stand not to bow, even on penalty of cremation while still living. And they had no guarantee of being delivered. Of course, they were. In the words of the old gospel song, they wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn. Mm. And they did not. And later on, the government, a new government, uh, runs afoul of Daniel. And here's the background for that before Randy reads it from Daniel 6. Um, Persians have taken over. And there's a king who's basically a good king, but they have this law that once you make something a law, it cannot be undone or reversed. And so um, some of the officials are really jealous of Daniel because it looks like he's next in line to be promoted to run everything. And he's a Jew and they want him out of there. And so they deceive the king into decreeing a law that anyone who does some praying publicly at certain times for the next month is to be thrown into the lion's den. All right. What happens? Daniel 6, 16 through 23. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. So the law then obviously gets passed. Daniel ignores it, does what he's always done. Three times a day he goes to his window and opens it so he can be seen publicly and prays toward Jerusalem three times every day. And so what happens is 
he is caught. They take him to the king. The king tries everything he can legally to try to get out of putting Daniel in the lion's den because he likes Daniel. He knows he's a good guy, but um, he can't come up with a solution. He can't sleep all night. So the next morning he wakes up. Is Daniel dead now? Have the lions eaten him? And as we heard Randy read, no, uh, he was delivered. So the king, being deceived by his officials, was trapped by his own law, cast Daniel into the lion's den, but God delivered him because he trusted in God. Just remember this, Jesus also trusted in the Lord God, and his deliverance came after his death, mm. as it would for others. Now here's another one of the Old Testament. Once again, a king gets tricked into signing a law that puts Jews uh, under persecution and, uh, and the death penalty just for being Jewish. And this is from the book of Esther. And um, there's a man named Haman, and he's a, a evil dude, and he tricks the king into signing a law uh, to exterminate Jews. Uh, and the king, of course, is unaware that Esther, his queen, whom he apparently does adore, um, is Jewish, not been known. And so what's going to happen? Um, bad things are going to happen. So there's a law in the land that says if you come to the king's court unannounced, the penalty is death. The only exception is he might take his scepter and point toward you and give you a break, but no one, at least in the book of Esther, knows if that ever having have happened. So um, Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, who's aware of all this, uh, goes to um, Esther and talks to her about what has to be done. So listen to this from Esther 4, 12 through 17. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So the king was tricked into signing into law the extermination of the Jews. Uh, only Esther can help. Note Mordecai's wisdom. The Jews will get delivered, but maybe this is why you're here. This is your moment. Uh, and she realizes it may cost her her life. But nonetheless, she goes. And the famous words, if I perish, I perish. But she doesn't. The king points his scepter at her. And eventually what happens through a series of uh, providential events, Haman gets hanged and Mordecai and Esther get exalted. So let's now go to the New Testament and see some uh, scriptures where Christians resist government overreach in uh, various ways. Uh, but let's look at some takeaways from the Old Testament here. Uh, these are duly ordained governments, per Romans 13, ordained by God. Uh, they were resisted. The midwives, to save innocent children. Rahab, saved her family by joining God's people. David refuses to kill, that is to have a revolutionary event and overthrow the government. Refuses to kill Saul, chosen by God, uh, and duly anointed by the prophet. Obadiah, hiding pro uh, the prophets and saving them uh, from being slain. Uh, and from a corrupt government. And then uh, there were three who refused, the three who refused to bow down to idolatrous government, 
And Daniel refused to stop publicly praying towards Jerusalem, despite the law says if you pray to that way, you're going to die. And some, saving people's lives, four, refusing to stop worshiping God, two, refusing to assassinate the king, one, while also resisting to surrender to him. And so we come back again to uh, Matthew 22, 21. Randy, if you would. They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Right. And uh, clearly the people who we just quoted from the Old Testament were doing that. Mm -hmm. They were already doing that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now let's figure out how it works in the New Testament church. We're going to look at Acts 4 here. And this, again, is a um, early persecution of the apostles. And they're hauled before the uh, duly ordained government of that time, overseen, of course, by the Roman government, but the Sanhedrin, as they called him, this council of uh, leaders, uh, ruled and, and mitigated all the laws and carried them out there in Israel, especially in Jerusalem. So Randy's going to read Acts 4, 11 through 20. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that we may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have been, have seen and heard. Right. They want to shut them up, <clears throat> and the apostles say, well, if you think that's going to be done, you go ahead. But we, for our part, are going to keep on doing what we're doing. Mm. We're not going to stop just because you issue an edict and a law. Now, if this duly organized uh, legitimate council uh, had had its way, churches would cease to exist. And the apostles make it clear uh, who they take their orders from, God. And note the apostles' persistence in this truth when they are brought before the council again. And here they uh, have been uh, preaching, and they're picked up again. They're brought back to the council. And so let's listen to Randy read Acts 5, 27 through 33. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet you hear you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Enraged and wanted to kill them. Simply because they said, we're not going to obey you. We obey God rather than men. And that's it in a nutshell. No government, local, national, or international has the authority to do this to shut down the church. 
we've already begun to experience that in the USA during the COVID-19 period, um, when many churches were shut down by government edict. They were not closed in California or in Canada by COVID. Governments closed them down. Uh, given another opportunity, what do you think will happen? Let's take a look now at Acts 12. Uh, persecution has increased and gotten more severe. And we see that uh, James, brother of John, uh, has been picked up and executed. And everybody, the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, like that. So uh, Herod went ahead and got a hold of Peter and arrested him too. So let's take a look at Acts 12, 1 through 3. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was done during the days of unleavened bread. Right, the kind of period we're in right now, coming up on uh, mm -hmm. Easter and all that. Um, so James is executed for being a Christian. Uh, to avoid death, he would have had to apostatize. And Peter clearly is next. But as if you know the rest of the story, he is miraculously delivered from Herod by an angel. But not always will he be so delivered. He will die a martyr. Jesus tells him that in John 21, that day is coming when he will stretch out his hands and he will not like where he's going. And that's, John says, by this he described the means by which he would glorify God uh, in his death. So what's next? Apostle Paul. We're going to look at Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen. Peter and James and John were not. So Paul has rights beyond normal Christians. In fact, he's in a select minority. What happens is this. In Acts 16, uh, he goes there. They've been preaching. They're starting. They formed a church up with some people. But there's been this slave girl who's been following them around for weeks who keeps saying, these are the men who show you the way of salvation. And she was demon-possessed and was being used as a fortune teller by her owners, because she's a slave. Paul, of course, finally couldn't take it anymore and uh, in righteous indignation says, come out of her demon. And the demon did. And then the owners of the slave girl realized their means of making money was gone. And so they gave trumped up charges to the local government that these men Rome, and, uh, were Romans and they were teaching things that were wrong. I'm not Romans, but they were teaching against the Roman government, uh, Paul and Silas, and therefore something should be done with them. Uh, of course, the reason was economic, but uh, that's the excuse they used. So, of course, they were taken, Paul and Silas, and they were beaten with rods and thrown into, into jail. That night, there's an earthquake. The jailer comes, and he thinks all the prisoners have escaped, and by Roman law, uh, he would be executed, so he was about to commit suicide. And when Paul says, we're all here, a conversation ensued, and the result was, before the night was over, the jailer, his wife, and children were all baptized and believers in Jesus. Next morning, um, word is sent that, uh, it was typical in, in how Rome did things, uh, we beat you with rods, you spent the night, uh, we're satisfied, uh, leave, you can go. And well, what happens then? Acts 16, 35 through 40. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. 
The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And uh, take note, because this is true of Paul throughout Acts, uh, Paul does not assert his rights and resist doing what the officials wanted for himself, but for those Christians who, not having citizenship rights, might be subjected to harassment and persecution from the governments, local otherwise. So he's doing this for other Christians who will pass through so they won't be persecuted. Well, let's come now to the last book in the Bible, Book of Revelation, and we've got a couple passages there. Revelation 1.9, Randy reads it. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Right. Because he gave testimony of Jesus, now he wasn't executed. They had other ways of dealing with him. They thought it would be better just to exile him. We don't know the backstory on that, but that's why John was there on Patmos, uh, which turned out to be a bad move by the government because that's how we got the book of Revelation, which actually depicts that government in a very negative light. Mm -hmm. So, but there's one revelation. Here's an interesting passage. Uh, this is when the seals are being opened, and we come to the uh, fifth seal, and you know, the sixth seal is a picture of one of the pictures uh, three times you get it in the book of Revelation of the second coming. Um, but let's listen to this, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Yes, and what I've always found interesting about this uh, sixth, this fifth seal is that the first four deal with the ongoing natural events of planet earth. Uh, people go off on a white horse to conquer what that brings is bloodshed, what that brings is disease and all kinds of chaos, and what that brings ultimately by the fourth seal is death. Uh, when we get the fifth seal open and we find people in heaven pleading with God for vindication because they have been uh, martyred, murdered for standing for the truth, and, you know, the answer is, you know, well, wear a white robe, which is a sign of purity and uh, assurance and rest. In other words, we want you to have a blessed time here because there's still others left to be killed, amazingly. Uh, in the first four seals, there's no indication that this is happening, which tells you again the world doesn't care that Christians get killed. The only reason we know it is because they show up in heaven and mm -hmm. make their complaint to God. And then we have, of course, the great Antichrist beast of Revelation 13, the opposite of the kind of government that Paul says God wants from Romans 13. So listen to this, Revelation 13, 7 through 8. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. To make war on the saints. That's uh, increasingly what's happening around the world. In the Eastern Hemisphere, it's been going on for some time, but it, it begins to look like it's taking a toehold uh, not only in Europe, but certainly here in this country. Uh, but there is a government uh, ministry of propaganda, again, which makes certain about 
this business of wanting to see people worship the government and its agenda. So let's move down to verse 15, Randy. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Yes, to be slain. This is the so-called false prophet. Uh, looks like a lamb, but speaks like the dragon. And he's the propaganda minister, and he is doing things to glorify the state. And we've seen that, certainly, in the last several years. And also making sure that those who don't worship the state and, and uh, all of that, the agenda, end up being slain. Their offense, not worshiping the government or its agenda. Uh, of course, by the time we get to uh, Revelation chapter 20, all these people who have been martyred are resurrected to reign with Jesus. So that's a reward and that's a reason to persevere in all these things. And so let's go back to Romans 13. We read the first four verses. Uh, don't resist the powers that are ordained of God and because they're there for law and order. Uh, and some of the reasons given to uh, resist them in the sense in which it would be a revolution show up in the other verses here. Romans 13, 5 through 7. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Oh, so that's pretty clear. So let's go back and review now. From the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people had reasons to resist the government that ruled over them when that government ordered them to abandon the law of God or the truth of God. All the examples we cited, I don't think anything, any of those had to do with taxes. Mm -hmm. Okay, When Paul says not to resist the powers that be, he means it is verboten. It is forbidden for Christians to stage a revolution or overthrow a government because we don't like it mm -hmm. or its taxes. And I know that makes the American Revolution appear in a different light. And maybe someday we'll address that in a podcast. <laughs> but nonetheless, this is what Scripture says. Uh, we cannot just foment a revolution to replace it with our idea of what should be a government because we don't like the taxes, because we don't like the agenda, because we don't like the, uh, the programs. Uh, that's wrong resistance. Well, to tell you the truth, there's a lot about taxes I don't like, and there's a lot of the agendas of this present government that I don't like, and most of the programs I don't like. Um, but I got no cause, according to the Word of God, to say, let's have a revolution mm -hmm. and establish a better government. David didn't do it, and neither should we. Right resistance is to continue the mission of the church, and when a government says stop, whether they say stop or, or else. Uh, when God says we are to do this, but government says no, do what we say, our allegiance is to God. For example, when the government may one day say to churches, you must acknowledge as truth the LGBTQ+, etc. way, we will have to say no. Mm -hmm. They will, you know, be, it's happening in other places around the world. Churches are quote, being forced to uh, bend their beliefs to what is currently culturally uh, going on. And then, of course, when we say no, we must be prepared for the consequences. Uh, the church in Acts was revolutionary in the way God ordained her to be. And listen to this, Acts 15, 5 through 7. Acts 17. Oh, Acts 17, 5 through 7. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble 
They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. And there you go. And of course they were saying there is a King Jesus. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But they perverted the point they were making. Turn the world upside down by being Christian. Christians throughout history have resisted evil laws and engaged in civil disobedience to serve the Lord, to stay true, to not fall into idolatry. Revolutions come and go, and one day when the Lord returns, all revolutions will cease. But the church of the Lord goes on forever. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. When Caesar comes to seize us, may it truly please us to take our stand for the Lord. And that's the Christian expectation. Well, thanks, Jim. We've got a lot to think about, and I'm sure there are additional questions and comments on it. We appreciate the questions and comments that we've led to this podcast. We'd love to hear more questions and comments from you. Please send them to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com or simply comment on one of our podcasts. We'll use your question or comment where possible, and as you can see, we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations, and until the next time, keep looking up.